Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be summing up the New South Wales state election, looking at the key seats where the election will be decided, and what issues have been central to the campaign. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Rebecca Huntley. Rebecca is a social researcher working for Vox Populi Research and is the author of the latest issue of Quarterly Essay. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Ben. My second guest is William Bow. William runs the Poll Bludger web- uh, website that I'm, I'm sure all of our listeners will be aware of. Hello, William. Hello, Ben and Rebecca. This weekend's election looks set to be very close. Uh, we have had four statewide polls this year, with two putting Labor in the lead with 51% and the other two tied at 50-50. It's very close. The most recent polls were published on March 10, with news polls showing a tie and Reachtel giving Labor a 51% lead. So if this is a close election, in what seats will the race be decided? William, what seats will you be watching most closely on Saturday night? Uh, if you look at the electoral pendulum, there are two categories of seat. There are Labor's low-hanging fruit, which uh, there's a bunch of seats that they can win with a swing of about 4%. If they are not looking good in any of them, they are in for a bad show. Even if they are looking good in those seats, though, there's a big kind of hurdle they have to climb to win the next seats along. So uh, just to sort of summarise what they um, East Hills, Upper Hunter, Monero, Coogee and Tweed will all fall with a swing of 3.2%. If Labor are falling short in any of them, it's going to be extremely difficult for them. But then you've got a big hole where the next seat along on the pendulum is 6.2%. So I think the general view is that those sort of seats will fall. I've heard a little bit of Upper Hunter maybe won't be as easy because sort of shooters and fishers and farmers are in the mix there. So uh, there's going to be a lot going on in this. Everything I'm saying here sort of assumes a uniform swing, but that's not how it's going to be. But however, to actually win the election and get a majority, we need to be seeing fairly hefty swings to Labor in in Sydney, Coogee and Penrith, and uh, beyond that, there are seats that are Labor are hoping to pick up in the regions, Goulburn and Bega. There is a sense that this government is Sydney centric. This whole business about the stadium development is playing very badly for the coalition outside of Sydney, and there are seats on the northern coast which are national party seats, which have seemingly secure margins. But if there's a really big title wave going on in the regions, then they'll be falling too. So I wish I could have given you a more pithy answer than that, but this is going to be a very uneven election. There's going to be swings going all over the place, and realistically, there's quite a lot of seats you need to have a look at, and it's going to be an eventful and somewhat confusing night. One of the things that's very interesting is you have these very different dynamics in different kinds of seats. So we're seeing today, we, we had polls in Penrith that I believe had the Liberals up by one, which is a relatively modest swing compared to what we're seeing in other places, whereas Goulburn um, is 50-50. And that's, I mean, it's a slightly more, slightly safer seat for the Liberal Party than Penrith. But those are two very different races where it does seem like there's a few of these seats that um, were held by the coalition all the way through the last government. But the the Liberals are having more trouble. Like you said, Goulburn, Mm. Bega, uh, Upper Hunter, places like that. So it, it does seem like a particularly complicated election, but I mean, then we also have that element of those Western New South Wales seats, which don't appear anywhere on the pendulum, really. They're way mm. up the end, but um, have come into play. Rebecca, do you have, what have, does anything jump out at you about oh, those wow. kind of places? Yeah. Oh, wow. Look, I, 
I can honestly say in 15 years, this is the only election I don't have a feel for. And for a while, I thought that was because I hadn't been doing a whole lot of qualitative research in, in New South Wales. But talking to some of the people, particularly inside the parties, I mean, their code for it's going to be an uneven swing and it's going to be a very kind of weird election is they kind of say, we're fighting it seat by seat. But mm. I think what, what that what that shows is a picture that's very strange. Like, it's going to be a really interesting night. So, so the reason I don't have a strong feel is that most of the time in an election, you get a real sense of the government being on the nose and people really wanting to chuck the government out and a sense that we really want the new guys to come in. And there's just not this mood. There's not a mood for change, but there's also not a mood that they like the government. <laughs> so there's a real stalemate. I think that's why you're getting those seat, those statewide polls showing 50-50. So really where the action is is at seat level. And we all know in this room that the kinds of polling that we get at seat level can is often robo-polling mm. and often really difficult. I always say robo-polling is unpredictably unpredictable. I'd love, I'd love your view about this. So, But the other thing I think that's really um, key is that you've got, you know, you've got shooters and fishers, but you've also got, I think you're just going to have at least a couple of really odd out there independent, mm. um, um, you know, strange anomalies really in terms of, what might happen with seats that I don't think um, we can really predict. I'm also watching um, what's going to happen with the Green vote. Um, I think that I, I can't necessarily see Labor winning in Newtown or Balmain, but I'll be fascinated to see what might happen, whether there's any swing or not in those seats. Mm. There's still people in the party that think that Balmain's in play. I don't know, but there's also people in the Labor Party who say that they don't think that they might pick up any um, city seats and that all of the action is really going to be in regional and rural New South Wales, that that's where the election will be decided. I've definitely heard that as well about the city the city element, but there is there is a number of seats in Sydney that are clearly in play and that the, the Liberals are worried about. They're worried about Penrith, they're worried about Heathcote. Uh, and then you do, like you said about the independents, we've got Indies in Dubbo and Wallandilly and... Cabra Matter even, although that doesn't really go with the flow of what's happening elsewhere. But um, one of the things, one of the big dynamics has to be that we have all of these minor parties that are in play. And it's not just that they have, they're getting five or 10% of the vote everywhere in their preferences, but a very uneven distribution of minor parties. Um, and it does seem like it's a relatively unusual election by Australian standards in terms of how big, how much of an impact those minor parties are having. Also, the fact you've got op optional preferential voting in New mm. South Wales means yes. that the minor party situation can be particularly consequential. Mm. I mentioned before, you know, that, that Upper Hunter ought to be a gimme for Labor, but uh, oh, I don't know how this fits my narrative, but, you know, shooters, fishers and farmers are going to take a certain section of and that And they're not vote. preferencing Labor in that seat. Well, there you go. I guess oh, that's. I, I guess. I guess that's the thinking. Um, that that seat, you know, even though it is one of those two three percent seats that ought to be, you know, a walkover for Labor in any election at which they're going to be competitive, that might be a bump in the road for them. So, uh, but you know, the, the, I think the main feeling, the most of the discussion in relation to minor parties, is that you have got those deep interior seats like Barwon and Murray 
where the nationals are, you know, under pressure from shooters, fishers and farmers. Um, shooters and fishers and farmers are have, uh, become a bit of a wild card in relation to the Christchurch atrocity. Mm. Um, the Liberal Party are attempting to use that against Labor in trying to tar them with having done a dirty deal with shooters, fishers and farmers. I don't know that that's going to seem intuitively obvious a line for voters to pick up on, but they've had John Howard out there propagating the line for whatever that's worth. I don't know if that's going to perhaps lose them votes out in those potentially winnable seats. Mm. I, you know, it's it's very difficult to get a finger on the pulse of these things because, you know, you can develop a sense of what's going on in Sydney. You know, we can sort of say that, you know, it does seem that Labor aren't on course for a massive swing in Sydney. If they're going to win this election, it's going to be by bringing home seats that they don't normally win out in the regions. But, you know, we've got these boutique little contests out in the in the country where you probably really do need your finger on the local pulse to know how mm. they're going to play out. What's going on in Ballaranald or somewhere out there? I haven't a notion, and I don't think we'll know until Saturday night. With the with the with the whole issue around gun control and John Howard, who was you know very articulate on this today, I mean, instinctually, without having done any research, I don't like to normally comment on this, but I think that my sense is the only thing that's going to happen is that those people in progressive inner city seats. Um, who hold those seats in the Labor side might get a few questions from, mm. you know, very high, you know, people who are really charts saying, well, what are, you know, apparently you've done mm. this deal with Shooter of Fishers, what does that mean? And and there might be some questions, but I just don't feel that there's enough of a force <laughs> behind. And, and, and a lot of those seats, the Liberal parties aren't targeting. So if you look at something like the seat of Strathfield, I think I think Jodie McKay holds that water by about 3.5%. But mm. we know that the Liberals aren't t- necessarily putting a lot of resources into targeting her. She's reasonably successful. Now, now she might get some questions around that from some of her, her more progressive constituents, but is it the kind of thing that's going to make them no, vote for the Liberal Party, given all the other issues that are on on track for them, that might be... I mean, the other thing that's fascinating to me is, and you're seeing it in some of the issues polls and you're also seeing it coming back from some of the candidates, is that we're seeing climate change and issues around climate change Mm. come up in a state electoral issue, which is, is a relatively new thing. I mean, most times voters associate issues around climate change um, with the federal government, and so I just kind of feel that that isn't necessarily going to be the kind of thing that's going to work, either to keep to help liberals keep their seats, or to get them, or to get the seats off the Labor Party that they're wanting to get. We're recording this on Monday night, and the How to Votes were released today. So for the first time at this election, uh, it's been the case in New South Wales for a while that registered. Um, material to be handed out on election day, all of the material, that all the material to be handed out on election day needs to be registered beforehand. This time, the deadline was last Friday, and for the first time, all that information has been put up on the website. So there's, the Electoral Commission has like probably over a thousand how to vote cards up on their site. All of the different parties have submitted all theirs. And it's it's actually quite a complex mix of where parties are preferencing and where they aren't. The shooters are preferencing Labor in about two thirds of the places they're running, and some of those are really marginal seats, but like Upper Hunter, there are other places where they're not. Um, and then we also see a lot of uh, complication on other sides. So Labor's in this kind of interesting position where they 
there's there's possibly two to four Greens that they might have to work with if we end up in a hung parliament situation. And so there's they're preferencing mostly preferencing the Greens in the upper house, although there's Western Sydney seats where they've held open an option of not doing that. Um, and then meanwhile, they're working to have a stronger relationship with the shooters who've had this falling out, which are... I'm really fascinated by what a hung parliament would look like in a situation where... <laughs> Fascinating is a good word. I'm, I'm actually horrified can Labor, about... Can Labor find a way to get the shooters and the Greens to both talk? Probably not. I don't think that's going to work. I think if you end up in that situation where they need both the shooters and the Greens to govern, probably that oh, means wow. the coalition stays in power. Um, that's um, a bit of a nightmare scenario. That is a poison chalice if Labor manages to find themselves in that position. And can you also then imagine an upper house with Mark Latham and... Um, who probably will stay with One Nation for about ten seconds after he gets elected? So I what, assume that's the plan. So what what does one do with that kind of a mix? And yeah. um, I mean, I don't know enough about Michael Daly. I mean, whether he's one of those kinds of people who doesn't necessarily come across as a charismatic leader, but he's excellent about that kind of backroom, you know, jimmying around and negotiation. I don't know enough, but. That kind of scenario is one of those situations where people say, well, the voters voted for this, but the outcome is not what people want. The outcome is not pandemonium. The outcome is not a Labor Party sitting in between Greens and Shooters and Fishers with One Nation holding the balance of power in the upper house. I mean, that's not an outcome that people are crying out for, but it may be one that the electoral math delivers for us on Saturday. Uh, well, a hung parliament refers to a spectrum of possibilities. You know, it can be a relatively stable situation oh, where one can, yeah. side or the other only needs an independent to get over the line. Yeah. Throwing it out there, though, what if Labor plus the Greens doesn't quite get a majority? They need the support of shooters and fishers to get there as well. Then what is the Greens' attitude? Are the Greens going to support a Labor government that's reliant upon shooters, fishers and farmers? Or would they, God forbid, prefer to keep the coalition in office? They would probably be hoping that people like Greg Piper and Alex Greenwich are also Mm. their sort of... They're a bit more flexible, probably, in terms of what they would do than, um, than the Greens, but... They sit somewhere in the middle in mm. terms of where they stand. And then Joe McGurr probably is a little bit closer to the conservative end, but also probably has some compatibility with the Greens. I don't I don't think the Greens would be in a position to um, immediately vote down such a government because I, I think the New South Wales Greens are pretty particularly committed to not supporting a Liberal government, um, But I, which means I think they could end up in a situation where they're kind of they're they're forced to vote confidence in a Labor government and then sort of uh, Labor has to negotiate with them on everything. But I also know that Labor doesn't like that kind of situation. They don't want to be in a situation where it's unstable and... Well, except there was a lot of, I mean, I don't know if either of you read Sean Crow's book about Whitlam's children, which focused a lot on the Gillard years, but a lot of senior Labor people in that book who were interviewed said, we probably should have just gone in and told the Greens, you can either vote for us or not. And we should have just lived with dealing with them on one issue at a time. Um, so maybe maybe Labor would take that stance that we can we can do a deal with one side and then the Greens won't have any other options. But I'm interested, Ben, you know, because I haven't I, I don't know enough about it. But it seems that you know obviously there's been some issues with the New South Wales Greens. When we talk about the Greens' position on this, is it a is there um, to some of the issues that we've seen come up in terms of members attacking each other? Or is there going mm. to be a unified position? on what might happen. I think things are going slightly better for them, actually, since Jeremy Buckingham left, because you have kind of 
I mean, I think a lot of the interpretation around the Jenny Leong, Jeremy Buckingham situation was wrong, where actually she wasn't a member of the left faction that had been in conflict with him for years. She was a member of this third middle faction. And that was a that her and Maureen Faruqi turning at that point was a sign that that kind of middle centre-left faction of the party had had given up and were like, we've had enough of you. And I think between the centre-left and the, the left, I think they can get to a position, and I think actually the right has been a bit weakened, but it does also mean they're a party where the grassroots members are very strong and it makes it very difficult for them to say, this de- we need you to swallow this deal. And right. so I think it is... I think actually... Because of that, you could end up in a situation where they say, "We can't, we can't, um, we can't find a way to get a deal where we've agreed on a whole bunch of policy on with Labor. All we can get through is confidence and supply, and we will like we'll have to work the rest out later." And so, and so, if that's the case, does that mean that that on any one issue that they might have to work with Labor, they have to go back to the membership, or the membership would have a strong? Let's say, well, I mean, say on what the Labor Party would do in that case. Possibly, possibly yeah. more than now. But I mean, yeah. the Greens have to negotiate on policy in the upper house. But it would be a greater sense of drama, I think, if you're in a situation where the government is constantly at risk of losing votes on the lower house as well. Maybe they'll end up in a situation where they can choose between the shooters and the Greens, which gives them a lot of power more than they would otherwise have. But It'll be a really interesting one. I mean, this will be a real... Gosh, talk about a rock and a hard place for the Labor <laughs> And again, they've got to think about, well, who... It, and that becomes perhaps less about policy and more about personality. Who do we think we can actually work with closely and who do we think will actually share our policy agenda? Um, you know, into, well, who, who who's prepared to horse trade easily mm. because they want it to be seamless. They won't want to have to put in too much effort. It'll just That will be a fascinating choice. I don't think anyone would have expected the construction of new stadiums to become one of the biggest issues in the state election, but the government's plans to demolish the Sydney football stadium and refurbish the former Olympic stadium have become a major part of this election, carrying a significance beyond the money being spent. Uh, Labor's been out of power for eight years. They've changed to a new leader who appears to have a bit of momentum, seems to be going over with voters a bit better than his predecessor. Um, so, Rebecca, apart from the issues we've already talked about, like what do you see as being those issues that are actually defining this campaign? Well, I think the stadium one is interesting, and you're right. It, it's taken on more, um, you know, more gravitas than the, the mere kind of collection of mere money involved in it. And what's interesting to me is it's, ta- it's taken on more significance than, let's say, the money on West Connect that's being spent on West Connects, which is eye watering. Mm. I think what happens about something like stadiums and, and Labor has been quite clever and the Greens have, have, have mimicked this, a kind of stadiums versus schools, is it kind of plays, it becomes emblematic. Like what are the priorities of the government? Um, where do the government has decided to put, put not only its money but its effort? And it, it kind of goes to this idea that, that really goes to a very Australian idea of not big or small government, but government with the right priorities, using the money in the right way. Mm. So the idea that you would just refurbish a place where people go and play sport, even though Australians value sport, over some of the other stuff that's happening, you know, hot classrooms and issues around infrastructure and spending on health and on all the rest of it, seems to show a government that doesn't have its priorities right, even though it's by no means the worst um 
waste of money that we've seen necessarily under this government. It just kind of neatly encapsulates it. I don't necessarily think it's lost on people too that the kinds of people who might have been pushing for those refurbishments are kind of from the top end of town mm. and the and the Alan Joneses of the world. You know, I think that kind of adds a little bit of a, a flavour to that. So I think that's less about stadiums and more about priorities in terms of spending. We have, um, you know, we've seen... A, you know, anywhere you go in New South Wales, the big conversations people are having are around things like schools and demountables and, you know, stuff around hospitals and um, general cost of healthcare. Um, and I suppose the other thing that's really interested me in the work that I've been doing across New South Wales and, and the data seems to, sh- seems to show this too in terms of the surveys is the extent to which environment and climate change um, mm. have come back on the national agenda but also in those in those local polls. I always think it's that combination of um, drought weather and and kind of extreme weather events mm. and 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 often what people see is political recalcitrance which they all kind of you know inertia and they really blame the Liberal Party for inertia on that um, that kind of, is pushing that issue up for people. And and it's wrong to completely characterise that as an inner-city lefty issue. If you go to rural and regional Australia, it, it, it may not always be about couched in terms of climate change, but in terms of um, necessarily about things like emission targets or anything. But they know the climate is changing. They've got real concerns around drought um, and, and just land management, water management, all the rest of it, those environmental concerns are significant for people wherever you go in New South Wales. Yeah, I mean, from my non-Sydney person's perspective, I think that within the political class in New South Wales, there is an exaggerated sense of the power that the right-wing media have in Sydney. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And this has prompted a number of unforced errors by the Berejiklian government, yeah. of which the stadium's issue is the most spectacular. Yeah. And uh, uh, this was probably a failing of the Labor government as well. Yeah. I think that this has uh, really led into, fed into the Sydney centricity of the government and that perspective perspective that they have and if the the that they do lose office at this election i think that uh, history will judge Gladys Berejiklian and very harshly as a political tactician and uh, that there will be a sense that she lost an eminently winnable election by uh, being a little bit too uh, easily spooked and uh, lacking a bit of fortitude in uh, standing up to certain people within the Sydney media. Well, one of the things that the government certainly lacked fortitude on, it was less of Berejiklian and more of Mike Baird, but I guess it was kind of when she came to power that they changed on it. But the Greyhound racing and the council amalgamations were both really big issues around 2016 when we had the Orange by-election and the Nationals lost a seat to the Shooters and there was this kind of moment where all of a sudden the bush seemed like a very difficult place for the government and they changed the National Party leader as if, you know, that would have ever been the reason why (laughs) anyone votes the way they vote. Well, anybody would know who the National Party leader is. Yeah, exactly. Um, But, I mean, the other thing I find really interesting is this government's actually spending a lot of money and building a lot of stuff yeah. that, you know, some people, I mean, plenty of people wouldn't like that a lot of that money has come from the electricity privatisation, which is very controversial. But, you know, they, they are building West Connects, but they're also building new train lines and they're building the the mm. um, light rail and all those kind of things. But 
the light rail, for example, has really become this symbol of of um, government incompetence. Even though I, I'm not sure it's necessarily been like it, it's had some hiccups, but it mm. it's sort of become the the shutdown of George Street seems to have become something that's been a bit of an albatross around their necks. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, kind of you know, this idea of this is this is an this is an eminently winnable election, as you said. Mm. I mean, orthodoxy would say that. You know, New South Wales, in terms of the economic numbers, is is pretty good. I mean, it's certainly been in a it's certainly been in a worse state before, um, relatively good in terms of employment. There's always that sense that government is doing something, like it's actually you know doing something, even even though that might create traffic problems in the short term. It's it's building things, and mm. it's and and in fact, its last budget did have quite a few measures around education and spending on health. So. It's it's trying to tick all those boxes that would normally see it secure government again, especially when you've got an opposition leader, regardless of what opposition leader you're talking about, who isn't necessarily very well known or or people are clamouring to for them to come to power. So it is interesting that they haven't been able to to leverage that into a better political position. I kind of compare it to the work I was doing in, in Victoria at the beginning of last year. Um, around something like the rail rail crossings, right? Mm. So this was something that um, the Premier had committed to um, when he was about to get elected. It was It's causing and has been causing enormous traffic problems. Mm. But people, for whatever reason, Victorians kept mentioning it as one of the reasons why they wanted to have him re-elected because mm. they felt that even though this was more expensive than it was supposed to be and causing a lot of traffic problems, they could see... Mm. over the hill that it was a really good thing to do. And the Liberal Party thought it was working for them as an issue, right? Yeah. They, and they were constantly talking not. about it. It's fascinating to compare this election to the Victorian election in a lot of ways. The Labor Party, after the election, I learned that the Labor Party was being extravagantly thanked by voters for its infrastructure program. <laughs> I never heard a word about that before the election. All I heard was sky rail. The disaster. The <laughs> Labor were in terrible trouble in all of these crucial sand belt electorates because of niggling little problems with the infrastructure programs. Labor got 10% swings in every single one of those seats. They have never won those seats more emphatically in history. And the media was focused on, as I say, niggling problems with infrastructure programs. You always have them. They always go over budget. There's always things that go wrong. But then, with the benefit of hindsight, the perspective on that absolutely changed radically after the election. To continue with comparing this election to the Victorian election, what happened in Victoria was that the Liberal Party got destroyed in Melbourne. The picture outside Melbourne was patchy. There were a few yeah. bad swings, but quite a few places, like the Cedar Ripon, I can't remember if they held it or not, yeah. there, was no, there was no swing there. And they held up pretty well outside, the, the, the coalition held up pretty well outside Melbourne. We seem to be having the complete and opera, opera, We're having mi- a mirror, mirror image of that. <laughs> it's true, in, isn't it? In that, we've got a coalition government doing a lot of infrastructure things in the city and holding up relatively well in the city. In Victoria, it was a Labor government getting the same thing happening to them, and I don't know exactly what was going on in terms of going happening. the difference being outside. I can't immediately think 
I'm sure it'll occur to me in a few seconds, why it would be that the coalition are you know, heading for a shellacking in the regions in New South Wales. People in the regions in Victoria weren't saying, why are you wasting all this money on level crossings? They can, can't they wait 10 seconds for a, to, to get across a railway line? Why are you neglecting our concerns? And and is it, I mean, what was really clear to me is when we were doing this, um, we were doing this qualitative research in marginal seats in, in regional Victoria and outer, you know, the, as, yep. the sand belt seats. And you know, this kind of idea that that I felt, again, often voters, because they can't be across every issue, right? There are, are the issues that affect them or the issues that they're particularly concerned mm. about. Mm. So often they seize on an issue that seems to say something about the nature of leadership of that human being, right? And so, so they were saying about Daniels, he said he was going to do it, he's doing it, it's difficult, it's time-consuming, but we know that after it, things are going to be better. So we're yeah. kind of giving him... So even though there was a bit of stuff about, you know, African gangs, a little bit, but very much prompted by the media, it was a secondary thing. He said he was going to do it. He's doing it. We can see things will be a bit better. And there was a bit of stuff about TAFE and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and they quite liked him. They didn't like the... Um, what was it? Lobster with the mobster guy. That was the only thing they could say about the opposition mm. guy. My mind and that is actually was, blanking about his name. Yeah, his name is Matthew, Matthew guy. guy. That's yep. it. And that was enough to secure what can only be described as just an extraordinary result, you know. And mm-hmm. so that's how the the quality of research. And when I was in February, I'm like, he's got it in the bag. I just I would never have have said. Um, and so so why isn't the same kind of dynamic working? for Berejiklian. So why aren't people saying, look, New South Wales are doing okay, like, okay, there's this stadium, but things are being built and we feel like infrastructure's happening. And yes, there's mm. some, there's some, a bit of blowout and a bit of time, but we can see that actually making the middle of Sydney a place where pedestrians are and, and more public mm. transport is and less, tra- less, less cars are is a good idea. Yeah. I mean, um, I think the stadium is the, the key to the perceptions yeah, game absolutely. here. This is a bread and circuses thing, <laughs> you know, and it's a lot like when Jeff Kennett lost unexpectedly in 1999 because he was perceived as being all about the South Bank Casino and the Grand Prix. That's absolutely right. That's a very similar mm. similar parallel. Yeah, so one one thing I'm wondering about as well is I'm thinking of these two different issues where I could see Sydney playing out um, – in a way that doesn't fit with the current expectations. On the one hand, you actually have the government's building a lot. And I and I think while there's a lot of talk about the difficulties caused by that, whether it's George Street or whether it's uh, the well, All the through the Macquarie. eastern suburbs. So, yeah. so people in the Labor Party think Coogee might be in train for two reasons, climate change and because the of the progressive mm. and the light rail. And mm. that's yeah. a seat that will be yeah. interesting to watch or nothing yeah. would happen oh, there because the demographics are... So there's so there's little. that, but then there's also there's like the Macquarie Uni train line getting shut down and yeah. what's happening with Bankstown line, although there's not really any Liberal seats there. But I can imagine a lot of people saying, look, you know, even possi- even generally progressive people who say... It didn't seem like Labor did very much when they were in government. They were in government for a long time and they largely paid off debt and didn't really build very much. 
And I mean, every time I see an op-ed by Bob Carr talking about the the Sydney light rail, <laughs> and I feel like he's he's the worst possible messenger on that. And I could imagine there being it's a bit like of a, a Pavlovian thing. dog response, which is that you're not going to vote Labor if you ever see something like that. Well, paper. yeah, I think we could see a story where the the day after the election we're saying actually people are really happy with the infrastructure spending and they're okay with the inconvenience or whatever. That on the one hand that that's entirely possible. On the other hand. I do think the big thing with the infrastructure is it's come along with development. And development is, I think, the big issue we haven't talked about yet, Mm. that everywhere, all over Sydney, there's a lot of development happening. And Labor is talking about each area needing its fair share, but actually, you know, like, it is actually distributed all over Sydney. It's just the city is growing very fast. And for a long time, the big theme of New South Wales politics was that the infrastructure wasn't keeping up with the development. Yeah, and you know, it's there's you know ought to be a sense that the government's making inroads on that. There could potentially, you know, it, it could be that way. But I think you know a couple of errors that they've made in relation to you know symbolic things like the stadium have interfered with that message. On the other hand, we are talking about the fact that you know they're probably going to hold up relatively well in Sydney, and Coogee seems to be the one seat where pretty much everyone agrees Labor will win off the Liberals in Sydney. They may win several others, but I don't can't name another seat in Sydney where there is a consensus that you know yeah, the Labor yeah. are clearly yeah. going to win that seat. Coogee yeah. is the one exception for no doubt the reasons that you identify. Yeah, yeah, I'll be watching Coogee, definitely. The shooters, fishers and farmers are preferencing Labor in Coogee. Oh, really? Yeah, I, that will be worth all the six <laughs> it's their only, Yeah, I know. Can you... <laughs> it's their only seat within about 30 kilometres of the CBD that they're running in, but they're preferencing Labor in Coogee. For, wow, interesting. For the, the 0.7% of people who voted the shooters in Coogee at the last upper house election. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. That'll be one to watch on election night. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you to William and Rebecca for joining me. Thank you, William. Thank you. And thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, both of you. So I'll be back on Sunday, hopefully, with a uh, post-election episode looking back at the results. Um, so, Rebecca, you've got a new quarterly essay. I do. It's out today. It's called Australia Fair, Listening to the Nation. Listening to the Nation. Lots and lots of polling in it, lots of research for data nerds like William and I. <laughs> and a few stories. And William, what are you going to be up to on election night? Um, maybe a little bit of blogging. Tune into the poll bludger. I, you will either see a lot or a little. It's uh, up in the air at the moment. But uh, in the final week of the campaign, there uh, should be a lot of uh, discussion, even if I don't know exactly what's going on in the night. I don't think anyone knows what's going on in the night on any level at all. That's my way of tying yeah. everything together. I think that's the one prediction, <laughs> yeah. that yeah. it will be a it will be a complicated and confusing election night. I'm sure we all agree about that. So you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>